Welcome to the 74th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg and my co-host from the Inland Ocean Coalition, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. And hello, everyone. Actually, our conversation today is spread between Hawaii, my office in California, and Rotan, Honduras, where Vicky's drying off between dives. So thanks, Zoom, for bringing the world closer. We're particularly happy to finally get to speak with Trey Packard, public arts curator, award-winning photographer, diver, founder and executive director of the Ponga Seed Foundation, which includes the Seawalls Artist for the Oceans program. This has involved hundreds of artists from around the world, creating over 500 ocean-themed murals and other public artworks in some 20 nations. Last September, I was honored to give a talk to 15 local artists involved in the program, and a week later, see their incredible murals being completed on walls and buildings, including a high school, a restaurant, and a warehouse spread across the town of Emeryville here in San Francisco's East Bay. So that was a thrill, and I want to get into that program. But before we do, Trey, let's talk about your own history, starting with your first childhood connection to that ultimate creative work, the ocean. Uh, thank you for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be here and to be able to share our work at Pangea Sea Foundation with uh, your community as well. Um, Happy New Year, everybody. And again, yeah, aloha from Hawaii. I think probably some of my earliest memories of the ocean, I, it, it's they are my earliest memories. I grew up in Southern California in Carlsbad, and my family, we were always, you know, around or near the water. So I, I never necessarily had, a, I guess, a, a fear of the ocean. Um, it was always something that was just part of life and, you know, uh, something that has continued to be over my 40-something years on the planet. I guess some of those earliest memories would probably be like, you know, body surfing with my sister, you know, playing in the surf, the kelp, uh, the sand, you know, those blue skies in Southern California. And it was just a magical place to grow up. When I was maybe 16 was probably the first time I did kind of like a exploratory dive on a trip out to uh, Jamaica in Montego Bay, just kind of like a, a spring break trip. And that was kind of a, a light bulb moment for me where it was kind of like, well, wait a second, you know, you know, aside from just like free diving and surfing and kind of the way I grew up on the water, I have this opportunity to put on a tank and hang out for anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour underwater and really get to know this place. So that is another world. Exactly. It's it's a passport to 70% of the world that you're not seeing. So yeah, it was just such a, a an eye-opening experience. And so when I went to university, um, I took a, a, a sports elective for uh, scuba diving and got certified through my university and um, that was in Austin, Texas. And most of our dives were confined to a pool. And our final checkout dive was in December in Lake Travis in a cold front and water where the visibility was maybe five feet in a rock quarry. So it broke my heart. So it was just like, you know, where's the warm water, the the good viz, you know, the tropical fish and so on. And so I kind of just got put off for a little bit. And there was another trip out to the, the Caribbean, I don't know, maybe a year later, uh, with some friends that kind of, you know, I guess reconnected that, I guess, kind of interest to explore and, and learn more about diving. So from that point on, I was probably about like 19. I just haven't looked back and like I've gotten, you know, multiple certifications over the years. Um, I'm a paddy dive master and yeah, I have just been, you know, diving everywhere that I possibly can. You know, I'm a type of person where I move pretty quickly and I always have a project on the move and my brain's always moving hundred miles an hour. But having that opportunity to kind of like disconnect and be in the water, it's always been this calming, you know, it had this calming effect on me. So yeah, it's always, I'm not necessarily a, a, a I guess an a, a active religious person, but the ocean has always been this place of, you know, peace and comfort for me. So yeah, I traveled uh, Asia for, you know, 
uh, several years, came back and made the decision that I wanted to move over there. And um, actually, I moved to Japan because it was a great place to have a job and then for it to be a springboard to travel Southeast Asia. And so anytime that I got you know time off, I planned these awesome expeditions either for surfing or for diving or you know everything was kind of like water, I guess, centric. And uh, over the years, I think that that was kind of like through the the first decade of the 2000s. And I think that's the decade that people really started to pay attention to what was happening to their oceans in terms of the degradation and the impact the humans are having on it. And I was seeing that in real time. You know, I'd go to a, a dive spot that was like, you know, really unique. And then I'd go back a couple of years later and it was like bombed out, you know, or it was, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the reefs were, you know, overfished or acidified or you know, climate changes had wreaked habit on it or, you know, biodiversity loss due to um, overfishing and so on. And yeah, it really kind of like triggered a, an interest in kind of like wanting to understand these issues, why it's happening and then what I could do. And back around this time as well, like I was looking at different conservation organizations that I could potentially donate my time to and help with. But for me, I mean, as, as a young person at that point, you know, the conservation was either kind of conservative or militant. And it didn't really resonate with me. So um, I, I just felt that there was a wide kind of arena playing field to do something unique there. And for me at the time, living in Japan, being a foreigner in a foreign country and kind of seeing what was happening in Japan at the time with, you know, the impact with other conservation organizations, not necessarily extending a, a branch for dialogue. And it was more kind of like confrontational. And here we are 15 years later and nothing's changed in those, those kind of capacities. I felt that, you know, maybe helping people to try to, to to be educated or better educated, inspired versus telling them what you can and cannot do, you know, from a different cultural point of view. And I grew up in a family full of artists. My uh, mother was a an art teacher and my grandfather was a professional musician. So like we were always kind of inspired to problem solve the creativity. There was always like a, a paintbrush or, you know, uh, a drumstick or a guitar around. So, and I, I've always felt that art is an incredible communication tool. You know, it, it bypasses culture and religion and, you know, status and so on. And um, it, it, it can be free source. It can be democratic and, you know, people resonate with, with the imagery. So in 2010, I reached out to artists that I was friends with, artists that I collected and held kind of like a grassroots kind of event in Tokyo where we had like 50 artists creating artworks that focused on shark conservation. We had public speakers, we had film, we had discussion, we had interpretive dance. We just kind of like threw this big like goulash of, you know, arts together and it was a hit. Like we, we sold out and um, people were super inspired, you know, like after the doors kind of like closed uh, that evening, like people hung around for hours just to talk about this and learn more. So that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me where it was kind of like, okay, you know, I could do, I guess I could carve my own path. And that was kind of the, I guess, the uh, the origin story for Pangea Seed Foundation. So you did this art collaboration in Japan on the very controversial issue of shark finning, and you yeah. got a very positive response. So where'd you go from there? Yeah. So from there, like it started to become like a, a multi-annual event in Japan. We started hosting it in different locations because other people started reaching out going, hey, we bring it here. We think it'd be important to host this here. So we did that from maybe like 2010 to like 2011. And then we got uh, tapped by a couple of curators and gallery spaces in other countries. And that was kind of that that aha moment where it was like, okay, this is something that people are interested in. You know, it's something that has value and, you know, uh, merit and, um, you know, can really, you know, hopefully inspire and, and engage people that aren't normally engaged in this type of conversation. 
And we, yeah, just kind of kept expanding from there. And it got to the point where it could either kind of like remain a passion project or we could kind of like, you know, cut the lines and just, you know, dive head to head first and, you know, follow our passions. And that's what we did. And I'm an American citizen. My wife is from Switzerland, but she's half Japanese. And uh, we decided that, you know, Hawaii could be a really good location for the organization to kind of like, you know, exist. We came back here because it kind of puts us kind of in between the mainland and Asia where we were doing so much work, you know, 10, 12 years ago. So we came back to the U.S. and established as a 501c3 nonprofit, built out our program areas, built out our board of directors, and um, really kind of kicked things off in like mid-2013. And we've just been nonstop ever since. So, and as I was mentioning with the program areas, one of them is the one that you participated in, David. Again, thank you so much, uh, which is the Seawalls Artists for Oceans program, which is our public art program. On the Rising Tide podcast in the past, we've had our friend Wyland, who is famous for his whaling walls, and yet traveling the world doing art projects where he's basically the one guy doing the big wall mural. Uh, he talks about incredible logistical challenges. And um, Vic, you had questions. Yeah, well, you know, I, I looked at a number of your videos. And my, uh, first of all, they're fantastic. And I love the engagement. But I started thinking, oh, my gosh, how do you go through the process? How do you get the permission, the permits, the funding, the paints, the artists, the speakers? It just seemed such an enormous project. I'd love to have you walk us through it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And that's something... I, that, that is so important uh, as part of the story uh, that a lot of people don't see is, you know, the behind the scenes, the logistics to make these public artworks happen. And like, um, as you were saying, I mean, it's so, you know, it's like the seven headed Hydra and yeah, there's so many different, you know, like, I guess aspects of it to, to, to wrangle in because I think you, you saw from, you know, the videos, we're not just painting like garage doors. I mean, we're painting 10 story buildings and, you know, we're, you know, a couple of hundred stories or excuse me, hundred feet off the ground sometimes. And, like it takes a very specific skill set in terms of the artist who's able to to paint large scale, you know, in an environment like that. You know, the permits that you need from a city to do this, you know, on a, on a safe level, the quantities of paint, um, you know, the 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 hoops that you have to jump through for you know public permission through property owners and you know city regulations and everything, all the bureaucracy and red tape. So there's a lot that goes into it. So what we've created through the Seawalls Artist Roses Public Art Program. There's really no roadmap for it, so or blueprint. So we've had to kind of like develop this as we go, which has been you know a lot of trial and error, you know. And like we're taking the project, you know, all around the world. So you're consistently working in you know different environments that are harsh due to you know weather elements, and then you know other places that are really intense because of like the bureaucracy, you know, of working with the governments and so on. You know, a lot of the countries that we tend to work in are ones that are profiting from the destruction of the ocean. So. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, it's it's a very delicate, you know, balancing act. But again, that kind of like reiterates the importance of using art as a tool to communicate because it does bypass all this bureaucracy and brings people together and there's value in it, you know. Tell us about your first one or two seawall projects, what you learned, where they were and how you've expanded. Sure, sure. The very first one that we hosted was in 2014, and that was on an island in the Caribbean um, off the coast of Mexico called Isla Mujeres. And we had been going out there for a few years leading expeditions through Pangea Sea Foundation for people to experience whale sharks and manta rings um, in, in their, their natural state. And 
Um, Isla is a really interesting location where it's become somewhat of a success story in terms of like, you know, a community realizing the value of these species, uh, that they're better off, you know, that they're, well, they're worth more alive than dead. Um, but yeah, so we, 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 at the time there was very little public art on Isla and this was, yeah, circa 2014. I think there were maybe like three murals around the island and they all kind of focused on like public health issues and they were all burned out. These were ones that were probably, you know, 10 years old at that point. So we had a friend um, that is a curator in that region, and uh, we we kind of planted the seed in 2013, and, and we're working with them to make the right connections on Isla within the, I guess, the political space, uh, the tourism space, and so on. So we got some really high-profile locations, invited 15 artists uh, from around the world in Mexico. And through our project, what we try to do in each location that we go to is, in the lead-up, we'll take the artists out to experience why we're there, you know, culturally, environmentally, and so on. So we had artists on on the boats that had never been in the ocean, and we're putting them in the ocean with, you know, like uh, 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 the aggregation of like 50 whale sharks, you know, and just blowing their minds. And it was it was such an inspiring opportunity to see what that could do to people. So, you know, like, like how that can influence an artist's practice and just the way people kind of like, you know, I guess, relate to the ocean and the environment in general. And yeah, that one, it was, there was a lot of logistical uh, roadblocks and things like that. In Mexico, you know, the safety regulations aren't what they would be in the States necessarily. So there was a lot of navigating to make sure that we were doing this on uh, in a safe way because we had artists that were painting, you know, 60, 70 feet off the ground. And uh, yeah, I mean, the project was a success. We got like write-ups in like the New York Times and I think the Guardian and a few other like high profile platforms that shined a spotlight on it. And one of the ripple effects that we didn't see coming was we came back the next year because uh, we wanted to expand on it, but not as big. We came back the next year to do a site visit and we could barely find a wall. Like we kind of just lit a fire in that area and like kind of opened an opportunity for artists from around Mexico to be able to come to a location and paint on their own um, about issues that are important to them. So like pretty much I'd say 95% of the murals that were created outside of our program there all focus on protecting the environment and the ocean. Well, the artists that came in were all volunteers. There's no funding for the artist. At the beginning? Yeah. Okay. At the, yeah. We were very, you know, grassroots and by your bootstraps kind of thing. And now um, we're, we, we've kind of put the model where we've given each of the artists, team members, people that help out on the team and so on, volunteers, uh, a stipend or an honorarium to at least, you know, hopefully make it sustainable for their time. On top of that, since the very beginning, we have always covered all costs so nothing comes out of the artist's pocket, you know, or the team member's pocket, like airfare, accommodations, flights, or excuse me, I said it, I said flights, um, paint materials, access equipment, food, and so on. So we want the artists and the team to be there and not have to worry about any of that. How do you get funding for all of this? Yeah. So like each project is roughly 12 to 18 months in the planning. Um, and the majority of that is the fundraising because I think by design, we've created a model where we pretty much have to start over because we're going into a new community almost every time. So we've got a track record, which is fantastic, which we can share. But again, you know, we're taking this project to like Indonesia and to like, you know, the subarctic up in like, you know, Manitoba and uh, kind of like everywhere in between. And like everywhere is very different in terms of like how you fund it, what things cost, access equipment that you can get. So um, it's kind of like, like a Sims kind of like, you know, I guess world builder. <laughs> and in real time, you have this opportunity to, to transform a landscape like David saw, like in, you know, an area that's, um, you know, heavily populated like Emeryville um, on the border of San Francisco. 
uh, we did, I think, 16 large-scale murals and just kind of like took over the cityscape in the span of like two weeks for the on-the-ground on part of it. But the lead-up for that project was around 18 months, you know, for the for the funding. And it was it was just beautiful, the variety of, of uh, and styles of art and the, the expansive sort of ocean presence on the walls of this, you know, kind of exurban city. It's amazing. We're, we're quite strategic about where we place these because we want them you know, to be in areas where, you know, hopefully it's it's high traffic. You know, if it's near a school where kids are commuting, if it's in an area where, um, you know, there's maybe a fishing port, you know, we have a great opportunity to send, you know, port messages in areas like that. So for each location, that's also part of the lead up, you know, that 12 to 18 months of the planning is the strategic aspect of it, like finding the right locations, the right partners. We always try to partner with, you know, researchers, scientists, nonprofit organizations that are on the ground because, there's no reason for us to reinvent the wheel in that aspect. So, you know, work with the people that are boots on the ground, you know, know the issues and we can help give them a platform to, to amplify what they're doing. So we do that quite often, but to get to your question, David, regarding, you know, some of the locations that have been, you know, positives and challenges and so on, we've been able to, you know, go to some really incredible places. As I said a little while ago, uh, one of the uh, places that was kind of a curveball was the polar bear capital of the world in Churchill, Manitoba. We went up there, you know, in the subarctic, and um, we did, I think, 19 murals in the span of like close to three weeks in an area that, you know, is, is frankly inhospitable. Like we had to go through polar bear training. So where all the artists and the team and everybody had to go through training with local rangers in case a polar bear does show up on site and the protocol of what to do. Each location had to have a bear guard. That person had to be compensated. So, you know, there's different things like that you don't necessarily think of, you know, that are... It's critical. Yeah. We get up there and we realize the sun never sets at this time of the year. Um, so for the artists, some of the artists use like a projector to get the outline up on the wall for the dimensions and it helps speed the process along. It never got dark enough to do that. So we had to kind of pivot. And another crazy thing that happened was like this, this area is kind of on the front lines of climate change as well, rising sea levels and so on, um, melting sea ice. But there, to, to get to Churchill, you can either go by airplane from Winnipeg, which costs around, it's incredibly expensive. Um, I want to say upwards of like close to $2,000 round trip. Um, and as a nonprofit organization, when you're taking like 30 people up there, that's, you know, it, it adds up quick. And like none of the materials that we really needed were up there. So we had to either take everything up by train and we wanted to leave no trace because we always try to do that with our projects. So we take everything back as well you know, the empty paint cans and, you know, buckets and so on. So we can dispose of properly in a place like uh, Winnipeg, which would have the, the infrastructure. So that was a big part of it as well. But I think it was like two weeks before we were like set to be on the ground. They had like a historic snowfall and then that melted and washed out the main train route. So we were not able to get up what we needed. So we had to pivot quickly and figure out ways to get everything up by plane. Yeah, yes. We managed to find an airline that was sympathetic and worked with us, and we were able to get everything up there. And uh, once we got there, like it, like you'd have one day where you just have these whipping like Arctic winds coming off the, the bay that would cut through anything Gore-Tex, and you're just freezing. And then the next day, like it would be like close to, you know, 90 degrees sweltering and mosquitoes in swarms like like that were just like something out of a horror movie. Like we had artists that were wearing beekeeper suits at their walls so they could actually see and paint because the mosquitoes were so thick. And that's one of the things that always inspires me. Like in those days where it's just like, God, what am I doing? 
How can I push through this obstacle? You know, a lot of times it's the artists and the team that help give me that extra inspiration that are out there on the field, you know, from dusk till dawn, going as hard as they can and not complaining, doing it with a smile the whole time, you know, and for the community. I'm assuming that you only work on one project at a time. So you don't have multiple projects happening at the same time. Right, Vicky. We try not to have things overlap because like we're a small team internally, so it's challenging. So we try to space them out over the year and in advance, of course. So pre-pandemic, we were basically one a quarter. And, you know, so, and then you're, you, you have the next year that's kind of in play and sometimes the year after that as well that you're already planning for. So for example, like right now, kicking off 2023, we'll be in St. Thomas on the U.S. Virgin Islands next week for the first one of the year. And then we've got three more big ones throughout the year. We'll be doing projects in Jogjakarta um, uh, and Pachitan in Indonesia, Cape Town, South Africa, and Biarritz in France. Do you have another example that was really challenging? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, definitely Churchill always pops out. I think I still have a little bit of PTSD from that one. Uh, Mexico is always challenging. Like we tend to do our projects there in the summer and the heat is just absolutely, you know, like it, it's incredibly taxing. And like for that, like we'll have to figure out like strategies throughout the day where like, you know, the artist will paint from like sun up until maybe like noon. And then the artist will take a siesta until like four and go back and then we'll have lights rig where they can paint into the night. So yeah, just different things like that. And like we learned that early on, like that very first Seawalls project that I was telling you about, we had an artist visiting from Japan um, who wasn't used to heat like that and got heat stroke um, or heat exhaustion, excuse me. And we had to take them to the hospital. Like there were, you know, things that we learned quite quickly. And what we've always done internally is like, we try to be transparent, no filter. We're like, after each project, the core team um, we'll meet together and we just kind of dissect the project, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, and take stock of that. So we don't repeat those mistakes moving forward. And we pull from the winds, you know, like why did that work and how can we expand on that? And do you give any guidance to the artist or do you just basically let them create? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we always, you know, give curatorial guidance to like a certain extent. So in the lead up, when we're working with like scientists and researchers and nonprofits on the ground, we work with them to create what we call a mural topic deck. And that narrows down the topics that we're going to highlight for that specific location. So that way we're making sure that the mural, murals, public artworks and installations and stuff are locally relevant. And then the artists will choose like their top three. And then we narrow it down internally to make sure that we don't have like 15 murals about plastic pollution and just one about, you know, overfishing or sustainable seafood options. So that's what we've been doing. And the model works really, really well. And it's a great way to for us to become knowledgeable in advance about the location that we're going into, the issues uh, that they're experiencing, the solutions that they've come up with to try to counter those. So yeah, internally, I mean, there's just so much that goes on that the general public tends not to see. But I don't know. I've always like kind of been a problem-solving type of individual. I like the way my brain works in those situations. And yeah, I guess I'm into it because, you know, here we are. We're going into year nine with the Seawalls Project this year. And as David said, we just crossed the 500 mural mark in 19 countries. It's incredibly humbling and reassuring, you know, when we look at the world and, and it, sometimes it feels like it's just burning, but, you know, we get to work with these individuals that help inspire us every day to keep going on and doing what we do. So I love how you just integrate the whole ocean protection into the art. And I'm wondering, you know, you've mentioned plastic pollution, overfishing. What are some of the ocean issues that you hope to address in the next year? Um, yeah, I mean... That's, that's, that's a tough one, Vicky, because there's so many pressing ocean issues that are, you know, this perfect storm that's happening all at once and there's so many stressors. So 
you know, we try to spread the love, but at the same time, making sure that we're dialing in the information because at the end of the day, the Seawell's pro program and what we're trying to do through art is science communication. You know, I mean, the, the issues that we're painting about are grounded in science. Granted, it might be abstract in terms of the way that the artist interprets, interprets that data and information, but everything that we do is grounded in science. One of the ripple effects we've seen over time is some artists have been like so touched and impacted by the experience that they've gone on to start their own nonprofits or, or you know, support other nonprofits that are doing work in their location that focus on ocean conservation and so on. So, yeah, it's it's really inspiring just to see kind of like, you know, the, the, the tentacles that this project has in, in different aspects. And I saw a beautiful octopus mural uh, on a high school, speaking of tentacles that yeah, yeah, yeah. artists did and, and revealed. Definitely. And I think you guys can, you know, uh, attest for this as well, but, you know, so many people, you know, of creative backgrounds, you know, have a love for nature and nature is kind of a cornerstone for what they do. It's been an inspiration since they started. So this platform has just been a great opportunity for artists to kind of like use their creative voice for something that's bigger than all of us, you know, and within the street art community, it's quite interesting because, you know, I mean, street art's been around for, you know, centuries, you know, depending on how it's used, but in its modern form, you know, it really has urban roots and like within kind of that, that urban landscape, you know, there tends to be kind of like beef between like crews and so on. So it, again, this, this program has been a great opportunity to bring, you know, creatives and, and graffiti artists, street artists together around the world and put kind of like, you know, their local beef aside to do something that's bigger than all of us. Um, so that's also been another route, you know, I guess kind of like one of the side effects that we didn't necessarily intend on, but yeah. It's been a great bridge in, in that aspect as well. It's like the peace you feel when you're diving is, is the ocean brings that peace to street artists. Totally, totally. And something that's really beautiful is like, you know, through the projects, like when we're on the ground, you know, you have to, your, your volunteers and your core team and your artists and everybody that's, you know, living together and working together and eating together. And like people just start to open up after a couple of days, you know, and you're bonding and people are sharing experiences of like their first time in the ocean or like, you know, fun anecdotes and, you know, just different things like that. And it's just, it's really amazing to see how the ocean does connect us all indirectly um, and kind of hear, you know, people's experiences firsthand. Like we've just had our minds blown at times. Like uh, one of the artists that we worked with um, who actually ended up curating one of the major seawalls projects in Santa Cruz back in 2020 or 2021, excuse me, his dad uh, was a white shark researcher and he didn't tell us until we were working together for probably like, I don't know, a year and a half and he was like oh by the way and we were like dude why didn't you tell us about this <laughs> his dad helped pioneer some of the white shark research out in uh, monterey bay so yeah it's just always interesting to, to to you know connect with these people and share story and you know the human spirit and you know um like i was saying you know like especially over the past several years it feels like the world's burning and to be able to bring a group of people together that you know really are passionate and care about the future of the planet you know future generations you know, and do something good for a community. It's, it's, it's incredibly inspiring. Well, your work is very inspiring and um, you do a great job with working with videographers to put the experience together. So I'm hoping that our listeners will check out some of the links and just keep up the good work. But David and I, we would both love to see you in Richmond and then of course me in Boulder down the road. So uh, we'd like to get some more ocean art into all of our communities. So we both want to thank you for being part of the Rising Tide Ocean podcast, and we will keep an eye out on your amazing work. Thanks so much. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Vicki. If anyone's interested to learn about more uh, of what we do, yeah, definitely check out those links. 
And, you know, uh, we're very active on social, you know, at Pangea Seed, at Seawalls underscore. And yeah, we'd love to see you out in the streets sometime. As we say at Pangea Seed, we bring the oceans into the streets. And yeah, we'd love to see you out there too. Awesome. Thank you so much. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.